Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today previously appeared on episode number 13, so I would like to welcome him back. And in case you don't know him, Brody Utley is the guitar player for the band Rivers of Nile, as well as a content collaborator for Gear Gods. And uh, he can be found working with Rocklitics and Atrium Audio on the production side of the fence. Also, Rivers of Nile will be on tour this May in the U.S. with Fallujah and, uh, of course, Alluvial. All right, let's get into it. Brody Utley, welcome back to the Riff Hard Podcast. What's going on, man? It's good to be talking to you again. Likewise. So you're rig building right now? A little bit. More so just putting the rig back together, you know, that uh, was disassembled after the last and only tour that we've done in the last like two years i'm sure you know chris kelly uh-huh he helped me build a pretty badass uh live rig for our tour that we did back in september with the black dahlia murder and now i'm in the process of uh putting that whole thing back together and so why'd you take it apart well it's, it's not completely disassembled it's just basically like you know we popped the kempers out and you know the various okay. pieces of the rig that guys needed to take home and practice but but as far as uh, the session and stuff, since this next tour that we're doing is a, is a headlining run, it's going to be a bunch more material. So I'm kind of in the process of, you know, taking the old front of house samples that we would be running now that we have way more inputs and outputs and converting them over to stereo because before we only were running mono tracks, now we're running stereo tracks for like all of the keyboard stuff and atmospheric stuff and mm -hmm. auxiliary percussion and whatnot. Um, so I'm kind of in the process of converting all that over and uh, getting, you know, the MIDI changes all programmed and everything like that. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of, I've kind of been in a frantic pre-tour mode for what feels like forever, but this is definitely the time when it kind of kicks into overdrive just before we leave. So when you say MIDI changes, are you doing like all your patch changes and also lights with the MIDI? We're doing all of our patch changes with MIDI. I would like to eventually get to the point where we have the lights on MIDI, but for this tour, we're just bringing out a light guy who he's got stuff already programmed out for his rig, and then he'll also control lights manually. You know, this, this whole thing with this, we, we've only done one tour uh, on in-ears uh, with the X32 and, and all that stuff. So this whole thing has been a real learning process. So now that we have that rig and we're kind of getting more comfortable with it, I think as more tours start happening this year and next, we're going to start integrating things that we can now do as a result of having that super badass uh, in-ear rig, such as, you know, uh, lights and everything like that. So the light changes aren't something that we've done yet, but it's something that I'd like to do. I just know it's very, very time consuming. I've talked to Dean about it a little bit over the years, and I know how much time you can dump into that. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, the amount of time that I'm spending on this, this session and, and getting everything ready for this tour already is pretty wild. But to think about having to program a light set on top of that at this point would just be insane, which is why I think whenever we do that, I'd like it to be when there's a little bit of a break or maybe even outsource it. It's just like, it sounds so time consuming and so tedious. It is. When I used to do that for Doth, like I would have to start six or seven weeks pre-tour basically, because you know, there's also the whole playing side of things. So I'd program all the lights. And the thing is after doing it a few times, like a lot of it was drag and drop and just alter it a little bit. But the first few times was like a 14, 15, 16 hour a day for three and a half weeks straight type of thing. In addition to the other stuff. It's a lot. That's just it is that, you know, once you, once you have this stuff all set up, for example, on our last album cycle, we did a tour in the US and then a tour in Europe where we played our entire record. So I programmed out the entire set MIDI change wise and sample wise and everything like that. And then any tours we did after that, I could pretty much just like drag and drop if we were like on a support slot or whatever, I could just drag and drop the songs from the headlining tour and it was real easy to get that set up. But with how kind of sporadic our touring schedule's been 
in the last two years, uh, it's, it's like, it's been a really slow process of getting everything dialed in and, and to the point where we can just sort of set it on autopilot and, and drag and drop. So hopefully after this tour, uh, I'll be able to do a lot of the, the, the dragging and dropping stuff. Cause, um, I mean, this stuff does stress me out like mega because it's so tedious. I mean, even just building the set, you know, making sure that like the levels on the the samples that we're using from this record are the same as the levels mm -hmm. as the samples on this record. It's just stuff like that that I don't know if I would have considered before we got everything like in a session, but it is stuff that makes a difference in front of house. And, on, and as you said, also the playing side of things, you got to learn. 11 songs and play them real good every night that thing too yeah that yeah that thing which is ultimately why people are coming out is to see you know is to hear the music and have a great time and if you aren't playing great then it's just sad and everyone's gonna you know fire you and uh want their <laughs> their money back um so yeah it's uh i don't know it's just finding uh the best way to split my time has been sort of the the name of the game with leading the lead up to this tour, you know, I feel like I used to be a lot better at time management and something happened over COVID where I got worse at it somehow. You don't just have more to do now. I guess I do have more to do now, but it's like, I don't know. For example, I'm playing guitar, running our rig. And also we're bringing out a bunch of like Moogs, live synthesizers and stuff on this tour. So I have like essentially like two, rigs that like I need to figure out and be able to operate and play well um, on top of the in-ear rig. So like those three things right there, plus like doing, I've, I've been, you know, we have some stuff coming up for promo with the, with the label and whatever for, uh, you know, we're doing some like live, live stuff with the other bands, just uh, promo basically for the tour. So it's just, it's just a lot, I guess, you know, um, especially after being home for two years, essentially. Yeah. It's almost like zero, like you had all this momentum, not you, but like everyone who does this, uh, who was active, had all the momentum of being active and then basically just slammed into a brick wall with all that momentum. And then now it's just suddenly like, all right, go. Yeah. The break was, in certain regards, I mean, it was really nice because for the first time in my adult life, I didn't have something coming up that I had to be anxious or concerned or, you know, working on, you know, I was really just kind of working on writing our last record. And it was, my mind was kind of completely clear from any of the normal things that would cloud my ability to just dedicate 100% of myself to, you know, a project. So I guess in that sense, it was, it was really nice, but you're right. Like the momentum thing, you know, we were just used to how it went, you know, everyone just kind of knew what to do and, and how to like handle stuff leading up to a tour. And like, it was kind of just on autopilot. And then yeah, it just came to a, a screeching halt. And, you know, it's it's weird, because we got to go do that Black Dahlia murder tour in September and October of 2021. Is that when that was? God. Yeah. My whole concept of time is so weird. For some reason, I feel like it was in February like two months ago, I was like, no, we were texting during that tour last fall. Yeah. Concept of time is so fucked up. What was that? Like eight months ago or something yeah. like that? Like, yeah, it's, it's insane. Like, like seriously, in my mind, it's February. Dude. I mean, I know. I mean, I came home from that last tour and I was like, oh man, I have eight whole months to get ready for this headlining tour. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to go home. I'm going to start working on all the things that I need to work on. By the time spring rolls around, all I'm going to have to do is just practice and get all sick at playing these songs. And that's absolutely not <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I, you know, I came home and, uh, and it was the holidays and I just completely just turned it all off for like three months. And uh, I didn't really like start working on stuff again until probably February of this year. So yeah, my sense of time is all fucked up. And uh, going out and doing that tour, which was probably the most badass tour we've ever done. It was like, so it was so much fun. Like every show was just either sold out or almost sold out. Like everyone on the tour was so nice and like awesome to hang with. You know, it was just like the best possible 
touring experience that we could have had coming back to do that for five weeks and then to just come home and be like, well, you're home for eight months. You know, it was like the weird, you know, guys talk about uh, post-tour depression a lot, right? That's a term that gets mm-hmm. thrown around by a lot of a lot of people in the industry. And I would say that after that one, it was the worst that I had ever experienced because it was after not doing it for so long and then doing it on that tour, which just felt like such a huge win and like a huge comeback for everybody and just like live live music and heavy metal in general. Like it just felt like a real like it's back, guys. Like like live music is back, you know? And then Omicron enters the chat. Yeah, exactly. It just like got really hopeless feeling again, you know? And it was like it was just like a real shock to the old the old brain, you know, like worse than it usually is. You know, I think that was the hard part. I mean, there's lots of hard parts, but I think that was the hardest part about last year was all the false starts. Yeah, dude. I mean, seeing friends being out there all stoked to go back out and then like having to deal with, you know, people getting it on on their team and tours getting canceled. It was just like, I don't know, like we all left that tour feeling very, very confident and very stoked. I don't understand how you guys didn't get it. I was planning on coming to hang out, but actually I got it my second time when you guys were on that tour, I think. Oh, geez. Or it was like right after that. And I was like, I am not going anywhere. But like, I remember talking to you and nobody got it, which is kind of unbelievable because that's when Delta was at its peak. But I want to talk about something you mentioned, which is a post-tour depression, which is, uh, I don't think it's specific to tours. I think it's post big project. Yeah. Like, so, because uh, I think post album yep, or like, you know, post URM summit or like post anything major that like you put all of your energy into that spans a long period of time that a lot of stuff kind of hang in the balance of, and it's really important. As soon as that's over, there's like this void because you were just focusing all your energy on this thing. And then it's like, what now? I think it's normal. Totally normal. Yeah. I mean, the way I see it, and you're right, it isn't just tour. I mean, it is anything that just requires a ton of like mental energy, you know, from you. Like it, it's really when you, when you put all of your eggs in one basket, as they say, and you just like, just push, 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 push on a project, whether it's a tour or a summit or an album or a, you know, a pitch, you know, like anything like that. And then you just, invest everything into this like all your whole self into this thing and then especially like when it succeeds like when it like succeeds in an overwhelming way it's weird yes it's like this is it's all working you know and it's almost like this like this like shot of dopamine to your brain that's just like yes it's it's working like everything is actually happening it's working like this was all worth it and your brain is just like taking in all this like good energy these good chemicals right and then when it's over it's almost like like doing a drug or something you know it's like you just like your serotonin is just like completely depleted after like these big, huge things, you know? I'd be curious for the MDs that are listening to this, because I know if you do, how close to the experience of being on a drug and withdrawing is what we're talking about. I bet you that what's going on brain chemistry wise is somewhat similar. The reason I'm saying that is because uh, there's lots of things that are similar to other things like breakups are interpreted by your brain, like a combination of both a death and a Coke withdrawal, which is why they feel so bad. Um, So I bet you that this is something similar to where brain interprets it like withdrawing from a drug or mourning some sort of a loss or something like that. Cause it's a pretty universal thing to have that post project emptiness. And the thing about it is that it's not so simple to just, start doing other stuff. You have to like find something else that is going to, well, first of all, that you have the energy for. So like, that's part of the problem too, is right after a project like that, you're kind of tapped out. So even if there was something that could excite you, you're almost not capable of being excited. Like you have to like build back up to that and to being able to like go for it. So it's almost like there's no real way around it. I know that like, for instance, in the Israeli army, what they do after they get out, this is like really typical with Israelis. They'll go to like South America and just like 
fuck around on the beach for like a couple months. That's like a really, really common thing. And I think that like doing that sort of thing, like where you completely remove yourself from that super intense environment you were in and put yourself somewhere else where none of that kind of shit matters. It kind of makes sense a lot. But like, if you're going back home to the place where you were working on this huge project, but this project no longer exists and you're in that spot, you kind of have to find this new meaning to being home and working on things. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, and especially in the, in the context of, of touring, I mean, you know, you're out there, you know, not sleeping great. Um, you're seeing so many friends, you know, every night and, you know, every day you're in a new place, like every day you're eating a different food, you know, some of it's delicious, some of it's awful, you know, you're all hopped up on caffeine, like, you know, maybe you're drinking alcohol, like, you know, like maybe you're smoking weed, like what, like you're just like overloading and it's just overload, overload. And then you play a show and it's like, it's awesome. And you sell a ton of merch and it's super sick. It's like, yes, like, it's like, no. And then you go home. It's like, no wonder you, you crash. It's like, you're just, you're just like literally like a civilian. Yeah. You're just like, you're just like crushing your brain for like, um, like four to five weeks. Right. And you're stuffed in close quarters with a bunch of dudes who smell terrible. Like it's, it's just like overload. And then you come home and it's like, well, you know, reality's still here. Like, you know, nothing, nothing has changed here. So like, no wonder, no wonder that happens, which is why, you know, on that last tour that we did, I knew that it was going to be like a brutal one coming home from because it was going to feel like a, such a major win um, and like just a great comeback. So like I personally, like I pretty much like didn't drink for that entire tour. I think it was a really good thing for me because it helped me sleep. It kept me out of like, you know, bars and restaurants or whatever, where like, you know, you might get sick or whatever. Like, so that was like part of it, of course. I don't know. I've been kind of trying to slowly as I get older, you know, I, I turned 30 last year. So like the getting older, I'm trying to like slowly figure out how to not die. Yeah. Go out and do this and not die and not come home and feel like a total psychopath. So, uh, cutting out the booze was like a major thing, just like trying, trying to get good sleep and like, you know, maybe meditating, you know, that just anything to just like ground myself has been, has been helpful. And I'm going to try keep trying to push the envelope with those kind of things. Like as we go forward, cause definitely can't, can't do it the way, you know, I used to, I mean, you know how it is. Like you're on a van tour for six <laughs> weeks and like you're with your friends and you see different friends that are in every, at every show. And it's just like a, it's insane. It's like nonstop stimulation. Also, also, I think the fact that there's new problems every day that you have to improvise solutions for, mm -hmm. like every tour, there's at least a few things that you've never experienced before in terms of problems. Like, you know, there's like the typical problems, like electricity's weird at this club or sounds like shit at that club or we're late and have like 30 minutes to set up or, you know, like those are like normal kinds of problems or the load in is just completely unrealistic. How the fuck is it even going to work? But there's always a few like curveball problems that require some serious improvisation and on the spot dealing with the situation and not turning it into a disaster. And I think that also, so you combine all the, the hyper stimulation of the shows, the, interaction with people, like all that stuff. And then you add the fact that you're constantly problem solving. It's just, you're redlining your brain basically. Yeah. You know, that's a big part of the reason why, like I've been kind of like tightening up my, my personal rig lately, you could say is just because of like those kind of things. Because, you know, especially now that we've kind of leveled up with our like our live show and like our live rig and stuff there's so much more that can go wrong and like i need to be present i need to be there i need to be able to think quickly if some shit goes down you know and it did go down of course so that's like another part of it i mean not to keep talking about this but you know just as an example uh the first show on that that black dahlia tour that we did was in chicago it was sold out i think it was like a like 1,400 cat venues, 1,400 people there. That's fucking sick. Yeah, it was insane. Our first show, well, let me finish. It was like set up to be the sickest return possible, right? We had these this new album coming out. Uh, we had 
you know, this badass tour that we were on. We had all this like hype behind this this album and stuff, and like we we're gonna play these new songs. It was gonna be awesome. We had this new rig, you know. Um, we were so excited, and the show was sold out. We could not get audio to send to front of house like at all like no matter what we did like we spent weeks designing this rig weeks learning it you know spent as much time as i could with this rig you know thought i had everything like all sorted out for it we could not get audio to send to front of house and we ended up playing two songs from our first record with no samples free balling no clicks nothing we just like sold out show first show back from covid blew it and then after the show we realized that there was something deep in the x32 that wasn't clicked and i clicked it and everything worked yeah it's always the one the the one setting or whatever that was about as bad as it could have gotten you know um and, and it did get that bad and like from there it felt like i could handle pretty much anything but that was enough to keep me on my toes and just remind me that like okay dude like you're out here, like these shows are like getting bigger and bigger and like you got to be present, man. Like you can't be feeling like shit, you know, because you didn't sleep last night or whatever. Like you got to you got to take care of yourself or else you're not going to be able to deal with this shit in any kind of reasonable way when the when the shit does hit the fan, you know, that really is super, super important. Shit will happen like it just will. There's kind of no way around it, man. I know that feeling of like the rig not working and then suddenly having to play the songs with no click, no tracks, no nothing. We, we didn't have like guitar tracks in our tracks. We always had like synth and all that stuff. But like you work on this show that's like timed, you know, it's whole thing is clicked out. Like there's lights, there's everything. And then suddenly everything you've been working on is out the window and you just have to like play the songs like an old school kind of band. It's like, you should be able to do that, but still it's fucking weird if that's not what you've been preparing for. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we don't run guitar tracks or anything. It's similar to what you guys did. I mean, we just have like all the synths and like pad, patty atmosphere and obviously saxophone, you know, if we don't have the guy out with us. Thank God. Right. You know, I know, (laughs) I know. Yeah. I mean, I know if, if you were at that show, you would have wanted your money back because there was no (laughs) sax playing. But um, but yeah, like no, I would have actually. You would have you would have bought more. I would merch. have been happy. I would have yeah, I would have bought all the merch. <laughs> yeah, you would have bought all of the merch. <laughs> I have a memory that I'll never forget from that show. Me and uh, our bass player Adam, we were standing side stage with the rig. The crowds were 15 minutes over our set time. The crowds just standing out there, like wondering what the hell is going on. And I just like I tried everything I could, and I just like looked at Adam, and I was just like, "What do we do?" And like, I never ask him that, you know what I mean? Like, and he was just like, I, I don't know. What should we do? And I was like, I don't know. Like, and then we were just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's just play these old ones and get out of here. So that's, uh, that's exactly what we did. But hopefully on this tour, uh, the Chicago show will be awesome and, and we will actually play our set. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Couple things. First, that kind of experience, I think, is one of the things that separates a professional band from like a local band because it happens to everybody, right? Like I remember seeing Megadeth a long fucking time ago. I mean like a long time ago and they went into a song that has like some clean shit or something like a different kind of sound. I forget what song and like Marty Friedman was playing to give you an idea of how long ago it was. Oh, okay. Got it. They went into it and it was just wrong. Like the drummer was playing the wrong song. Like they were on the wrong patches. Like it was just a fucking whoopsie. They just like stopped and then just counted off and then it was fine. Like nothing even happened. But uh, I wonder how many people even noticed. It was like three seconds. I know that things like that with like, let's say amateur bands will like completely derail them and ruin them psychologically. It could be beyond just that one night. Like they could develop a complex about playing live or whatever because of it. Whereas pro bands, it happens to, and it sucks, but they just figure out a solution and then just deal with it. That's it. Just do it again the next day. And then just keep going and not let stuff like that. They don't let, while I think a lot of people do acknowledge that that stuff sucks, pro bands don't really let that stuff get to them, I guess. Yeah. Hearing you say that is good. 
uh, because it makes me realize that I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, like where I know that I have to continue and like the show must go on. But there definitely after that night, there was like a solid week of shows where I was just like handshaking, um, just like waiting for something bad to happen. It didn't happen. I think we only had one more issue on that tour. It was actually a show that Wes was at in Atlanta. Our, uh, laptop disconnected from the x32 and we lost the click thanks wes yeah thanks wes good learning experience you know i mean and i guess like in a certain respect those things happening now in hindsight as terrible as they were when they were happening now like it's like a callus you know where like you know i can just kind of i think the next time that happens i'll know exactly what to do and how to handle it but you know why i think it was probably worse than it would be if it happened like on this next tour and then the one after that is just because it had been so long. So it was all, not to say that you guys were like in local band mode, but like part of the problem that amateur bands have is they don't play live enough. So like every single show is such a big deal to them because it's so infrequent. Kind of like the same thing. If like you're writing songs, you have one member in a band that writes like 50 songs a year. And then one member of a band who writes five riffs a year the member that writes the 50 songs a year is going to be way more comfortable with ditching ideas. And that person that writes the five riffs is going to become super uh, precious about those five riffs. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, if you haven't played a show in literally years, and then that first show back, there's a technical snafu that it seems like a much bigger deal just because of the context, as opposed to like, you know, say it's like a normal year and you've done like five tours or something. And somewhere in those, you know, in the middle of tour four, this happens. I don't think that you'd be all shaky for a week. No. And I think that the fact that we, you know, Chris and I built that rig about three weeks before we left for that tour and we were second on the lineup of five. So like we really had no time to like spend with the rig in a live setting. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that was a big part of it. And the fact that we made it work for that whole tour was like pretty, pretty insane to me considering how much new stuff we had brought in. But this tour coming up, we're actually like, you know, we're renting out the venue uh, in Reading here, Reverb, and we're like doing like a whole day of actual like pre-production with lights and big boy shit. Yeah, finally. Um, So like, you know, uh, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll spend a good amount of time that day trying to get shit to go wrong. Um, so that when we go out, we're just ready for anything that may happen. So I think that by, by itself, you know, uh, just having that, that day of like, okay, let's set it up and have a pretend whole pretend show before we actually play a show. That'll be like a, that'll be a big weight off of my shoulders personally. So I'm, I'm very glad that we're at the point as a, as a band where like we can do that kind of thing. Cause it is, it does take uh, a lot of stress off of us um, going into a, a tour like this. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So it's good. You can do that. I want to talk about your practice routine just cause one thing I was curious about was just cause I can kind of relate is you've got so much going on right now that isn't related to guitar, but like you have to be, good at guitar for this stuff like you can't like that that can't be like a good enough sort of thing it's got to be to the standard of like tech metal which is really fucking high so in addition to all this stuff you have to do that i just kind of relate because of musical stuff going on right now where i have to figure out how to play and then also have to write the stuff but then also there's a there's this shit called URM and Riff Hard. Yes, heard of it. It's no joke the amount of time that that shit takes. So I'm like trying to figure out like strategies for making sure that practice is super effective. So I saw that you said that like you're aiming for like two to three heavy practice days a week. And so that's kind of what I'm looking at too is something like one day a week, I know that I'm going to spend like eight hours writing. And then there's a few days of the week that I know that I'm going to be able to put a good like four hours into technical practice. And then the other days I have like a maintenance routine to where at least I'm not going to lose anything. And it's just kind of like figuring out a time management scheme that kind of checks off all the boxes, just knowing that I can't do what I used to do, which is 15 hours a day, every single day for months and months and months. Like it's just not possible. So I'm wondering how you're 
doing that? Yeah, uh, I'm just really, if I only have, you know, if I have a day where I have like an hour and a half of free time or whatever, usually what I'll do is I'll just run the set and I'll just just do the whole thing. Like I'll play each song one time, just like straight through the set essentially. And I'll kind of make a mental note or even I've gotten into like writing stuff down on like a little notebook that I keep on my desk. I'll, I'll make notes on like which parts of the set are giving me trouble, which transitions like I need to work on and stuff. And then on the days where I have more time, like say five or six hours, I'll spend those days going through the set and basically like going in with a fine tooth comb and zeroing in on on those parts that I that I know are giving me trouble. Um, I'm kind of at the point now with the set where pretty much all of the the rhythm stuff I'm like nine out of ten tight on. It's just a few specific like lead parts where you know I need to go in and and like we have uh, Sheet Happens uh, has done a bunch of tab books for us. So like shout out Sheet Happens. Yeah, shout out Sheet Happens. Um, they you know everything that they do is so organized and like easy to you know go in and solo stuff out and slow stuff down and like because I'm very bad at tabbing um, which is why we let them do it Um, I've never been good at it and it's never like really been a tool in my in my arsenal um, slowing tabs down I've always kind of just done it manually with like a metronome and then just played it out but for this tour specifically I've really been utilizing tabs and using the you know slow down to 60 or 70 percent speed feature to like really go in and like focus on those parts that are giving me trouble. So I'll spend my days where I have more time working on that stuff, the sections that are giving me more trouble and the days where I have less time to um, just kind of run the set and get the feel of, of how this is going to go. Because for me, something that I noticed, and I may have talked about this the last time I was on here, is that sitting down and practicing is basically a different instrument than standing up and practicing. Fuck yes, it is. Something that I really try to do when I'm preparing for, for a tour, especially the, this one and the last one, is do the whole set standing up and like actually like practice like the parts that are giving me trouble standing up. Like, you know, as if I'm in a live setting, like I'll put my leg up on the, the little couch here and as if it was like a monitor or whatever. Like I try to do everything now as if I was doing it live because... I could play this stuff fantastic sitting down when I'm, you know, sitting here like this. But when you stand up and you, I don't like to wear my guitar super high. I like more relaxed, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, height. And like, it's just a totally different thing, you know? So I think that, you know, on the days where I, where I do practice the entire set, I like to kind of set up this little room that I'm in as if I'm really playing it live and I'll just do the whole thing standing up and, you know, notice things that are different from when I, when I learned the stuff sitting down and make changes as needed. So, and yeah. And then, like I said earlier, I've, I feel like I've gotten worse at time management and then I just kind of, the rest of the time, I just kind of panic and like use what I've got left to like put into, (laughs) you know, the set and, uh, set building and and everything else. So it's going to be a good one, but it's, it's definitely been a stressful thing leading up to this tour just because there is, once again, so much new stuff, you know, we're bringing out like lights for the first time, like full light backline. And like, we're finally on a bandwagon, that whole thing. And like, we're bringing out five crew guys. Wow. Yeah. There's so much going into this one. Fucking awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like the biggest operation that we've ever taken out. And, you know, me and Adam, our bass player and Ben, our manager are kind of like the three dudes making it all happen. Uh, it's just really been a balancing act. But the one thing that I've just really been trying to stay on top of is my playing. This tour is we're bringing out some fucking psychos on the guitar, man. I mean, I have to play for an hour after Wes Hauk and Scott Carstairs, you know, play, you know, Scott being from Fallujah, West from Alluvia, like those two guys are, are monsters and like I have to play after them. So if that's not enough to keep me on top of my shit, I don't know what is, you know. Kind of intimidating. Absolutely. I mean, me and me and Wes talk a lot and like usually whenever whenever I'm talking to him, he's practicing. That's been an inspirational thing for me. Um, just like being friends with that dude and like seeing how much of himself he just de- dedicates to the instrument in such a pure way. Um, you know, something I could never do, you know, on the level that he does, but it it does inspire me. And, um, 
and it keeps me working. It's kept me working on this one, especially because I know, you know, he'll be out there. He'll be out there with me. Just my f- friends that I have, you know, that are like killer players have been kind of the the gas in the tank for me on this one, on top of just not wanting to sound like a jackass every night. So, <laughs> I mean, fear is like such a great motivator. Like, it's weird to me that like a lot of people will talk about how your motivation should be all positive stuff, but they're full of shit. Cause it's usually people I know who say that stuff, who don't have something they're working towards that has a fear element to it. So like having to play after Wes and not wanting to like sound like a fucking chump being in a band with Amel back then, like definitely I never like dedicated myself to guitar the way he did. Cause it's just not who I am, but it definitely drove me to get a lot better. Cause anybody next to him is going to look like a chump. So the goal being just don't look like too much of a chump. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of accept the reality of the situation when you're next to someone like that, being around people like that will drive you. Yeah. That's a great mantra though. Don't look like too much of a chump that should be on a shirt somewhere. <laughs> yeah. A little is unavoidable, but... uh, Yeah, for sure. But I would say fear is the primary motivator in my life. Yeah, same. I find people who uh, find the motivation in, in positivity through everything to be inspiring, but it doesn't... That doesn't work for me. Like, fear of uh, failure, fear of, uh, you know, being broke, fear of looking like an idiot, fear of letting people down. I mean, that's just... That's just, like, what keeps me out of the pits basically is just like not wanting that stuff to happen and like, you know, doing everything that I can to keep it from happening. I mean, that's really fear is the great, is the great motivator. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I don't do the, uh, the inspirational thing, like the positive inspiration thing. Dude, I wish, I wish I could, you know, like it, it seems like the, it seems like those people really have something eh. really have it figured out. They're psychopaths. Yeah, like, like uh, it's like, uh, yeah, like American psychos. <laughs> I just don't buy it. Maybe it's just me, but like, I feel like human psychology is wired to look for threats. And so we're going to take shit a lot more seriously if we feel like there's a threat. And it doesn't mean a threat like something's going to kill you. It's more like a threat to your livelihood, a threat to like your honor, a threat to like anything like that, a threat to your future. Yeah, it's, it is definitely a very powerful mo- motivator in my life. It's just it's just a balancing act of not letting that completely overtake everything. Because I mean, if you if you let fear become too much of a of a, a guest in your life, it, it can be a destructive thing. Well, yeah, that's for sure. There's ways to harness it, you know, which I certainly haven't mastered. But it is really the the great motivator for me, and and it seems like it's uh, it's done me well thus far. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, what I've noticed is a lot of people who have the fear, which I think is most people, like it becomes destructive when they listen to it, I guess. Um, so my trick is to feel it, but not take it too seriously. Zen, this is very risky. This could go wrong or whatever. That doesn't stop me from doing something. And it never has. Like, uh, you're going to look like an idiot if you try to make this thing work. Yes. I'm just going to try to make it work. But I do know a lot of people who have the fear of failure, the fear of sounding like shit, and they use that as their guide on whether or not they're going to go through with a task. And they'll just default to not doing the thing because of the fear. And for me, it's more like, just do the thing. Yeah. The fear, it does seem to kind of go hand in hand with creative people, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just kind of part of, of the wiring, I guess. One of my favorite creative minds of all time is, is David Lynch. Oh yeah. Weirdo. Yeah, dude. I mean, but like total genius in, in, in my book. Yes. He's like way behind the transcendental meditation thing. I don't know how much, how much you know about that, but like he talks about the fear a lot and, uh, and how he used to have it in like this, like really kind of like debilitating crippling sort of way um and you know when he i guess when he started uh doing this this tm in 1973 i guess he's done it twice a day every day since 1973 and not missed a single day of it and uh he talks about how 
um, after a couple of weeks of doing this, like the fear, every, all the stuff that we're talking about, it just lifted. And it's like, that sounds really nice. You know, um, sounds like a really nice thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it just like, it's just kind of commentary on like the, the condition of like artists and creatives in general that like, I know so many people who like, who like, um, are into his work and like into just his, uh, just this kind of like philosophy uh, of life and stuff and, and how he handles, um, a lot of the issues that are kind of associated with, with artists and, and creatives. I don't know why I'm talking about this. I just like, I got his book, um, a little while ago called catching the big fish. And it's kind of all about that. It's all about like anxiety and fear and artists and creative thinkers and like his kind of journey through all of that. And like the tools that he's found useful for, for having such a, you know, creative and, and kind of just a interesting career, I guess. It says a lot that it's so strong with him that he has to maintain that discipline in order to not get off track. I mean, it's like David Goggins with like just exercise, you know, like it seems like it's the same kind of thing with him, but like with his mind, you know, it's like, I guess, I guess everybody kind of has their own way of like keeping it at bay. I mean, I've found that when I can run, you know, that's all, that's like the best way for me to kind of clear my head and like kind of get the fear out, the bad fear that is. And I've been trying meditation for a little while now, and I can't say with certainty that it's working yet. I'm always trying things to kind of alleviate the bad fear and, uh, you know, bottle the, the productive fear, I guess. I'm like still on the fence about meditation. Yeah. We've discussed this before, I think. Yeah. It sounds really nice. It definitely sounds really nice. But like, uh, I wonder how much time David Lynch puts into it. Like when he does it twice a day, is that like five minutes a shot or like, it's 20, it's 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes okay. in the afternoon. And he just, he just repeats some mantra in his head. And apparently I will make a weird movie. I will make a weird movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what this book is, is kind of about. It's called catching the big fish. And he basically refers to ideas as fish. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, anybody can catch a fish. It's basically like how you prepare the fish and how deep down you can go to catch the bigger fish. You know, he's, he's just so, he's like wild dude, just the way he talks about anything. Like I remember watching some video of him talking about TM where he was like holding a donut. He was like, this is a donut. If you had never had a donut before, you wouldn't know how good this donut can possibly be. And then he goes on to connect that with like TM and like the human experience, like I don't know. It's dude. He's just, he's something else for sure. You like lost highway. Yes. I mean, twin peaks is like my, that's the one for me, but yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of all of, all of his work. Eraserhead was the first one that I saw twin peaks, the show or the movie or, uh, the show, I mean the show twin peaks, but then I also like fire walk with me, the movie as well. Pretty much anything that he's done. I'm way into do, uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive exist in the same universe, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, like it, they're 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 in the Lynchian universe, man. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't. I mean, probably. I think so. In my mind, they do. Probably. I mean, like, there's there's a lot of connecting tissue between like all of that guy's work, everything that he does. The newest season of Twin Peaks that came out a couple of years ago was just mind blowing. Like, I, I I remember watching that and just thinking, like, this is like the most insane shit that I've ever seen on like television ever like it's so some of the stuff is just so esoteric and strange it's like it's like the visual it's like the film equivalent of like captain beefheart you know what i mean like it's just like trout mask replica the show and like they're putting it on right after the bachelor or whatever like it's crazy that people you know are just watching this on tv but um sorry i don't know i just kind of went down a, a david lynch uh hole there that's okay <laughs> but i'm a huge fan yeah yeah for sure but anyway yeah i don't know can't really confirm the meditation thing yet but that's been something that i've been trying out lately every day just to kind of like uh, center myself i guess you know because you, you know how it is when you've got a thousand things you're thinking about you're never really like you're never really where you're at i guess you're always like the next step ahead or a couple steps ahead yep that's my problem i'm always somewhere else you know i could be at my you know, girlfriend's family's house for 
a birthday party or whatever. And like, I'm thinking about MIDI changes. Like that's kind of like a, it's a frustrating, probably a frustrating thing for other people to be around. So <laughs> I try to like reel it in when I can and like trying this meditation thing out. We'll get back to you. I don't know. I don't know if it's working yet or not, but, but we can maybe uh, reconvene. Yeah. I'm curious. I, maybe I haven't done it enough for it to work. Yeah, I just downloaded this app called One Giant Mind. It's free and it like basically just like walks you through all the steps of like being able to do this on your own. And it's, I don't know, I'm kind of doing it on my own now and it's and it's like coming part of my routine. Uh, I just, I don't really know if it's actually chilled me out or not, except <laughs> for like immediately like after it, I'm like, oh, I feel great. I just meditate and then like look at my phone and, you know, th the whole thing falls down. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. I like want to believe that it works. Me too, man. I really do. <laughs> so we'll we'll see. <laughs> so what is up with the production stuff that you're doing? The content creation and uh, Rock Lidditz? Yeah, the town that it's in is, is Lidditz, Pennsylvania. It's basically pretty similar to like York, Pennsylvania, where, mm -hmm. you know, we, we did the uh, Nail the Mix episode with Carson and Grant. It's pretty much the same kind of environment. It's like Amish country, Pennsylvania. This facility out there, it's this giant business center, I guess, where like all of these like awesome places that are all kind of related to like arts and media and stuff, All they're all in this one area. Like uh, Atrium Audio's new location is at Rock Lidditz. Bob Bradshaw, you know, uh, who built everyone's rigs, you know, back in the day, he actually has an office there. Mm, um, okay. There's a, there's a store called Tone Tailors there, which is kind of like a, a high end guitar shop, you know, where like you could go and you can buy like fairly high end guitars that might be out of reach for your average person price wise. Um, but then they also have more affordable stuff, but it's like just a really cool area. And then the place where I've been working at um, is this rehearsal facility where big touring acts like you know the biggest touring acts like anyone from uh you know elton john to justin bieber to slipknot to mm -hmm. you know ariana grande whoever john mayer like they you know they go to this facility before they leave for their tours and they like set up their entire arena or stadium setup or whatever you know there have been all different kinds of acts in there with all different setups and yeah it's basically just like a pre-production facility for the big dogs essentially and then they have uh, people come in from the local area to help out with stuff whether it's building video screens or you know doing lighting arrays or cabling or audio stuff uh, stage building, like any of that kind of stuff. That's one of the things that I've been doing since we got back from the last tour. One of my friends put me in touch with one of the guys there and, uh, it's a cool setup cause it's, it's like an as needed sort of thing. So I can kind of like come and go do touring, do the band and stuff, and then come back and do that stuff. So you're always in the environment. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm obviously, you know, music is like the thing that I care about the most. And so like when I'm there and I'm seeing all this stuff, you know, like all these just legendary performers and like, you know, just like flight cases with like, yes, stamped on them or flight cases with like giant band X, like that just blows my mind. I'm just like, mm -hmm. what? I'm like, I'm like, that's, you know, that's so-and-so's, you know, guitar boat right there. Like that's insane. And like a lot of the other people that work there are just like, they're just there to work. Like they don't give a shit about like any of that stuff. So like sometimes I'll find myself kind of like, my mind will be blown and it'll just be like, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, so it's been like a, it's kind of, it's been like a funny, it's been a funny thing. Cause there's some people that work there that are like definitely there. Cause they're like, you know, they're just like into, into like music, I guess. And then there's other people that are like, they're only, they're just like, literally just like blue collar, like people just like there to like get a, get a check and get out. Like, so it's been an interesting experience, but it's a crazy facility though, man. Like I'm sure you guys will end up doing something with Carson and Grant that'll get you to the new studio. The new studio is absolutely insane. Uh, I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. I mean, I have, it is uh really fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, Justin Bieber was in there uh, a couple of months ago. I saw that and was like, okay, all right then. Yep. Michael Anthony and Jason Bonham were in there a little while ago. So like, yeah, it's kind of perfect for them because they have this brand new studio built from the ground up with like state of the art, everything. It looks incredible. It's mind blowing, dude. Like you, you remember, you remember the last one. I mean, I remember both like, because I was at the 
OG one. Yes, the the tiny one. The the red room. Yeah, dude. Like I guess like the last location, the one that we did the nail the mix at. That was a pretty nice one too. I think that one was maybe like a little more stoked out with just like completely over the top, like, you know, SSL consoles, like the most insane outboard gear I've ever seen. Like, I think maybe the last one in in that sense had a leg up on this one, but the actual like build of this one, like the architecture behind it, like everything down to like the wood paneling on the walls, like flooring, the lighting, everything. It's just insane. There have been a few times after getting off work at a, at the uh, production studio where like, I'll just swing by the studio to see Carson and just hang out for a little bit. And um, dude, yeah, I'm like so happy for those guys that they have this, this new spot. And like, we've, I've known Carson since probably 2008 or 2009. And we recorded our very first, the very first Rivers of Nile EP at like this little tiny, you know, studio that was like kind of like a, just like a defunct wood shop that they turned into a studio now all the way up to this place. So, you know, I'm, I'm really stoked for those guys. And like that new studio is absolutely insane. It's awesome seeing people level up. Dude. Yeah. I mean, they certainly have leveled up. I mean, between the the last one that they were at and now this one, which is you know, which is their spot. Yeah, that being the big difference. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great to see. I'm looking forward to recording at the new spot with them because we actually did our last record at this sort of like transitional studio that they were at. They like rented out. Um, they were renting from someone in uh, Landisville, Pennsylvania. I don't really know how else to describe the studio other than it looks like it's somewhere that Opeth would record a record. Very like 70s kind of like. So it was from 1968. Yeah, like I think maybe like some like uh, some like drugs that uh, Stevie Nicks uh, spilled in the carpet may have still been in yeah. the carpet, you know, when they were recording rumors. Um, so yeah, but we recorded our last record at that spot. And then as soon as we were done, basically, they went to this new spot. And the same thing happened with the last spot that they were at, the crazy one that we did uh, the Nail the Mix at. They moved into that one right after we got done recording two records ago at the Red Room place. So so maybe this time you'll actually get to go to the nice spot. I know. Yeah, so far I've only hung out at their nice spots, but I'm looking forward to actually tracking some stuff there one day. But yeah, man, that, that new studio is insane. And it's in a great location. All of the people in these bands that, you know, come through that spot, they'll stay at like the hotel that's connected to there. And like, they'll just hang out in that whole, there's everything they could need is in that area. There's restaurants, there's like a brewery, there's anything they could need. And like, they'll, you know, they'll just go into places. Like they'll go into the guitar store that I was telling you about, you know, you'll see like John Mayer, whoever just like checking out some pedals. Same thing with the studio. It's like perfect. There couldn't be a better location um, for that place for them. So I'm, I'm beyond stoked for those guys. That's fucking awesome. I think it's also awesome that you are, uh, headlining and I'm, uh, stoked for this tour. I'm stoked to, uh, hear how it goes. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a good place to end the episode. But I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, hang out. And, uh, yeah, just like we said, uh, for people who are listening to this in April or May of 2022, um, the tour with, uh, Rivers of Nile, Fallujah, Alluvial. And Warforged from Chicago, yeah. That's right, Warforged. Our uh, U.S. all of May. Yes, sir. Thanks again for having me on, man. Anytime, man. Thank you. Hell yeah.